everything pivots and hinges off of this man named Abraham. And we meet him and we have no idea who he is. We do know the intro to Abraham. And without diminishing the first 11 chapters of the Bible, I mean, what do we have in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, the beginning of the story? What do we have? Creation, kind of a big deal, right? Kind of a big deal. What's next? The fall, or right, the sin of Adam and Hava, that's kind of a big deal, right? What's next in Genesis? Cain and Abel, right? You got Cain and Hevel, right? And then we have what? Right? We got the flood, we've got the Tower of Babel, we've got all kinds of stuff. I mean, the first 11 chapters are pretty important, right? Um, so I don't want to diminish the importance of the first 11 chapters of Genesis. However, the first 11 chapters of Genesis from a literary standpoint. And when I say literary, by the way, is it cold in here? No, no? okay. By, by, by literary, I mean that we, we believe that this book is the inspired word of God, right? We've talked about this before. It is inspired. However, we know that it did not drop out of the sky in the form that we have it. There's a lot of man fingerprints human fingerprints on the scriptures which means that these stories these words from God this word of God was was organized and written down by humans that were inspired of God right God partnered with humanity with humans and inspired them not only as he spoke his word to them and they wrote it down but also as they wrote down and collected stories and traditions and and miracles and testimonies of things that had happened in the past these things were collected they were organized they were moved around and put in different places and they were codified into scripture and one of the things that I've been studying lately is I'm preparing to teach a series on how to read the Bible. Uh, and it, it may be a couple of weeks. It's probably going to be more like six months, maybe longer than that. Because the Bible, while it is God's word and while it is inspired and while it is uh, authoritative and all those things that we believe it is, it is also a piece of literature. God communicates to people and people communicate to us in the form of writing and we've used this example before, but how many of you would read a newspaper and a comic book the same way? Well, in today's world, you might read them, you might read them the same way. Maybe that's a bad example. Um, you, you go to the doctor and you get your COVID test and they give you a readout of, of, uh, of your antibodies or whatever. You don't read that the same way as you read a comic, uh, a comic book. There's different types of literature and the Bible is full of different types of literature. And so when I talk about literary, that's what I'm talking about. The way that it's written, the way that the literature communicates, whether they use narrative or poetry or prophecy or all these different literary devices to communicate. And as we look over the literary structure of Genesis, the first 11 chapters, while very important, really function as an introduction or a preamble, if you will, a preface. That doesn't mean that they're not important, it just means that they're leading up to something. The, the guy, whether it's Moses or whether it's whoever it, may, whoever it is that wrote Genesis, are putting these stories in place for a reason. 
So let's kind of look at the trajectory of the first 11 chapters of Genesis. We have creation in the garden, right? We have, we have crea- if, we, if we look at it as a, as a timeline, which we know that biblical stuff is cyclical, but let's just look at it as a timeline. Here we have creation, right? Creation's kind of a big deal, right? We have creation, creation, everything's good. We have Adam, so let's say creation, Adam, everything's really good. Then Adam and Hava fail, right? And then we have the birth of Abel. We have Cain and Abel, right? Which is kind of a a big deal. And then Cain kills Abel. Then we have the birth of Seth, and that's kind of a big deal. And then the earth starts to groan and things, and what happens next in the narrative? Tower of Babel, right? We have the Tower of Babel. And that's kind of a really low point. And then everything just starts to just, it just decreases and decreases and decreases until you have the flood, right? And that's kind of where God says, all right, I'm done. We're going to start over. I'm going to cleanse, cleanse creation. We're going to start all over again. This is, this is, and then all of a sudden we have this. This is chapter 12 and Abraham so the whole just the, the, the shape of the first 11 chapters of Genesis the shape is this creation God Hashem the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob is the creator one God one God who is master of all gods creators of the heavens and the earth that's the first chapter of Genesis there is no one beside him. There is no one above him. He alone is God. Hashem Echad is one, right? We sing the Shema. Chapter two, not only is God king and one and creator, but God created humans because he wanted to impart his image to us so that we could be his representation in the earth. And what is the whole job of man in creation and in existence what's the whole job of man the whole job of man is to rule in the image of Hashem that is the whole job of man I wrote it up here because it's that important this is the function and purpose that mankind was created you and me and those that we don't even know the whole reason that humanity is even a thing did God have to create human beings no he had a plethora of animals that that he could have enjoyed and that that he could have you know he could have walked the earth with and he could have ruled he could actually rule the animals easier than he rules humans Because he gave humans free will. You say, well, I got a dog that should, or a cat. When we've got a cat, you know, they have free will too. But God created humanity. God created humans. Uh oh. Trouble in the nursery. God created humans and the function and purpose of humanity. The reason you and I exist, I can't stress this enough to you. The reason you and I are breathing air today has nothing to do with anything except ruling the earth in the image of God. 
That's it. Most of you are married. Your purpose is only to, is, is to love your spouse, not only, I shouldn't say that. Your purpose is to love your spouse in the image of Hashem. Not to rule them, but to love them, to partner with them, to be one with them so that together you can fulfill this calling. Producing children and being faithful and multiplying is all part of this calling. It all falls under this heading that we learn to be the Selim Elohim, image of, image of Hashem, Selim Elohim, the image of God. Selim Elohim, which actually means God's idol. I mentioned this, I haven't taught on it real deeply, but this word Selim is another word for idol. That's a T, I'm sorry, T-S-E-L-E-M. What do you mean, you don't, you don't understand my nasty handwriting? The word Selim is a word idol. So let, let's think about what goes on here. God creates humanity, mankind, and he says, you're my idol. Now, what is the one trespass, the one sin, the one offense that God has the most trouble with in the Tanakh? Idolatry. Can you kind of understand why idolatry is such a big deal? What are idols? What are idols? They're, they're man's creation of other human-like things or, or animal. They're other creation-type things. They can be little humans. They can be little animals. There's a whole variety of things that idol. But what is it about those idols? Do they speak? Are they animated? Do they have life? Do they have power? Do they have any, any, any animation to them whatsoever? So see, when, when God creates humans, he makes us his idol. Not like he worships us, but he makes us the form. What is an idol supposed to be? An idol is supposed to be the representation of the God, right? A wooden idol, a golden idol, is supposed to represent the God, be a stand-in for the God, be the physical interaction between humanity and an invisible God. That's what idols were supposed to be. So when God creates humanity and says, let's create them Selim Elohim in the image of God, the idols of God, do you see how that's kind of a big deal? That our purpose and our identity as human beings, not Baptist or Catholic or Protestant or Hebrew roots or atheist or whatever, our, our vocation and identity as human beings is to be God's idol which means we are the physical representation of an invisible God. That also means that those that worship God, we are also the connection point between those that worship and the God who is worshiped. The vehicle, the what's the word I'm looking for, Kyle? I'm looking back there at some smarter people than I am. The conduit, thank you, that's a good word. The conduit. Everything that God, that God uh, chastised Israel over in the idolatry, in their idolatry, why is God so upset about idolatry? Because we're taking our identity and forsaking it for something that's inanimate. God creates, creates humanity 
and he breathes in them the breath of life and the, the breath of life is the animating force it's what separates us from idols that we are animated we are creative we are the we are the character of god on the earth and so when we when we when we take that identity and shove it aside and instead put our faith in an idol that we created that has no power that has no life that has no animation can you see how that breaks the heart of God and is just completely against what God intended pretty incredible isn't it so this is going to play a really big really big role in what we're going to talk about today in Avraham so we have God creates these humans from the ground right he creates humanity Adam from the ground Adama Adam humanity comes from the ground the ground is Adama in Hebrew all kind of cool things in the first two chapters of Genesis. So we have we have this God who is king and we have these idols that are re- supposed to represent him, okay? Called humans, humans. And we have the the fall that we call it or or Adam's Adam and Eve's trespass of sacred space where they eat something they're not supposed to, they disobey a direct commandment. And this is where idolatry really begins because as an idol, you have no sense of your own of what is right and wrong, what is good and bad. As an idol, your identity is based on the one or from the one who created you. Your function is given to you by the one that created you. You have none of your own. And what happens in the fall is that Adam and Hava choose to live life based on their own wisdom and their own definition of good and bad. They eat from the tree of the knowledge, the etz da'at, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and, for, and forego the tree of life, which is the identity that Hashem gives and the wisdom that Hashem gives. So then we have Cain and Abel, the murder. Seth is born, it's kind of a big deal. Babel, the flood. The Tower of Babel, I'm sorry. Flood, that is backwards, isn't it? Thank you. See, I'm, who said the Bible first? Y'all need to go back and read your Bibles. And I just wrote it like I didn't know what I was talking about. Flood, then Babel. There you go. All right, thank you. <laughs> I could see your face was doing something, and I thought, what's wrong? What did I say that's wrong? Um, so, so um, the flood, and then the Tower of Babel, well, what is the reason for the flood? What's the re- There's a word. There's a word. Starts with a V. That's the reason for the flood. The reason for the flood is violence. Now just think about that. The reason why God cleansed the entire earth is because of violence. Not because of homosexuality or lesbianism or trans whatever, LBGT, BCFG, XYZ. It's not because of any of that. It's not because, yeah, plus, sorry. 
our uh, what we some something on on uh, is it Disney whatever it's Latin X month, so it's just whatever Latin plus whatever else you are Latin whatever, and it's like well, no why not it's like Hispanic Mexican Puerto Rican why you know no it's just Latin, Latin X, we want to make sure we don't offend anybody. So anyway, the the it's violence. It's violence. And then where does the Tower of Babel happen? Where does this whole thing happen? Does anybody remember your biblical geography? Shinar, right? Shinar, Shinar, right? Well, that's great. But where's that? Huh? In a valley. That's right. Where's the valley? East, great. East, well, what, what is that? What is that place east of the garden? Right? Garden? Right? Exile. That's great. I'm looking for the name of a place. Babylon. Babel. Babylon. Oh. Babylon. The Tower of Babel happens in, we know it of Shinar. We know the Tower of Babel. What we don't understand or don't recognize is that this is Babylon. The Babylon that we're going to hear about later. Say what? Yeah, same word. The Babylon we're going to hear about later that is the, the, the biggest part of the whole prophetic narrative. This very Babylon is where this happens. Now, think about this. Who is the king of Babel or Babylon at this point? Come on, y'all all know this. If y'all studied the pagan origins of everything, you ought to know this. Nimrod, there we go, right. <laughs> Nimrod, yeah? So Nimrod is the king of Babylon, okay? When Babel happens, now we're told that God, you know, disperses everybody, and we've talked about this before, by the way. What is the problem with the Tower of Babel? Well, what have, what, are you, what have you been taught the problem with Babel is? Well, people were trying to get up to heaven so they could supplant God on the throne. That's not what the text says. They said, let's build us a tower so the gods will come down. Because in ancient, um, ancient temple worship, that's what happened. You built a temple so that God would come and inhabit your space. So that God would be with you in your space. Isn't that interesting that that's exactly what happened in the garden? God puts humans in the garden and then God, what, walks with them? He comes to where they are. He comes and fills their space. This is an ancient, this is not just Israelite, this is an ancient way of thinking because it's an ancient story, an ancient document. They said, let's build us a tower so that the gods will come down and be with us and so that our name will be great. Oh. So that the idol, the Selim, actually becomes the thing to be worshipped. Not the God that the idols represent. It doesn't have anything to do with building a ladder, a tower up to heaven. That's silly. Even in ancient people, they weren't knuckle-dragging Neanderthals. They knew you couldn't build a... A, a, a stone tower all the way to heaven that's not the point the, the problem is though that Shinar is in a what a valley where are temples usually mountains 
it, they're in a plain, the plains of Shinar, the valley of Shinar, a lot of, not a lot of mountains. So there's a thing, we've talked about this again, we've talked about a ziggurat, right, which is a man-made mountain that you put a temple on or near. That, and, and we read in the story what happens. God goes, hey, what's going on down there? Let us go down and see, right? So the big thing about Babel is not the building of the tower. The big thing about Babel is that they wanted God in their space to make their own name great. They wanted to manipulate God into making their own name great. Sound familiar? Hope not. Who is the guy who's leading this thing? Nimrod. So this is chapter 11 of, this is chapter 11 of Genesis. Right? And then who, we, who do we meet in chapter 12? Avram. Well, what we can't do is we can't separate Abraham from the things that have just gone on. See, chapter breaks, 10 and verse breaks, do us as much harm as they do good. Because we go, this is chapter 11, okay, we turn the page, chapter 12, new thing, new story. No. Remember, these things are all stitched together for a very important purpose. God cleansed the earth already, and it still wasn't good enough. (laughs) That's pretty rough. You think things are bad today. God flooded the entire earth, if you believe it that way, and flooded the entire earth, and it still wasn't good enough. That's, I mean, that's pretty rough. It's in the light of the Tower of Babel and the dispersion of the people of of Babel, of Babylon, which is interesting. The people of Babylon are dispersed. They're exiled. And then they'll later be the people that exiles are exiled to. Also, Babylon here in the very beginnings of Genesis and then mystery Babylon in Revelation. You see the big circle the Bible does? Big cycle. Big with a whole bunch of little cycles inside. Babylon was a big deal here. Israel gets exiled to Babylon. Babylon or Judah gets exiled to Babylon, right? Gets freed. At the end of the age, we're told that there's going to be a mystery Babylon. Does that mean that we all should hate Iraqis? Because that's kind of where Babylon is, the Fertile Crescent. No, it doesn't mean we all should hate Iraqis. It means that the system, the Babylon system, the beastly system, that always is a direct opposition to Hashem. That system is is the one we have to be worried about. It's in light of Babel and Nimrod that we meet Avram. And we can't disconnect those things because there's, there's some very important ties in, in that. So let's read chapter 12 of uh, Bereshit. And it says that Hashem said to Avram, go for yourself from your land, from your relatives, and from your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation I will bless you I will make your name great and you shall be a blessing I will bless those who bless you and him who curses you I will curse and all the families of the earth shall this is different in your translations but this one says bless themselves by you so man there's so much 
in this. So, go for yourself, lech lecha. Go for yourself from your land, from your relatives, and from your father's house to the land I will show you. So there's a lot of history here. And you might be asking yourself, well, Joe, how do you know all these things? How do you know this Nimrod thing? How do you know all this stuff? Well, there's, there's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of Jewish writing and Jewish history on this time period and on all of these stories and things in the Tanakh. They're not in your scriptures, and if you were taught that scripture alone is the authority for determining what is truth, it is, in my opinion, it is the highest standard for determining what is truth, but there is truth outside of scripture as well. That doesn't offend you. There's truth outside of scripture as well. We miss out on a lot of other pieces of the puzzle if we only try to make the Bible answer every question and, and tell us every shade of every color. That's not, a, that's not a diss on the Bible. That's not what the Bible's designed to do. The, God didn't intend for the Bible to do that. And he didn't inspire the writers that wrote it to do that. And so there's a massive, um, a massive work called Midrash in Jewish in Judaism midrash and midrash is an interpretive method it's a way of of filling in the gaps you ever been reading through the bible and you come in and go like hmm seems like some details are missing well or i don't understand how did we get from there to here where did this guy go come from or where what what happened putting all these pieces together well over the centuries the jewish people the sages have developed interpretive methods of the torah to fill in some of these details now the midrash is not necessarily literally actually historically true and even the jewish people know this it's not to be taken as literally true but it is to help the storyline along and actually i was talking to someone this week um (laughs) i was talking to an orthodox jew this week and we were talking about scripture and we're talking about midrash and I said, well, you know, I understand, let me make sure I understand this right, that the Midrash is not meant to be taken literally historically true. And he said, yeah, it's just like the Tanakh. <laughs> and I was like, I can't say that in Shabbat Fellowship, but I just did. So anyway, the, the, this idea that it's, it's storytelling, right? It's storytelling. And when you tell your children of how hard it was for you growing up as a kid, you walked uphill to school both ways in the snow in South Louisiana. (laughs) So let's not judge the biblical writers for being less than perfectly historically accurate when they're telling us about how great the king of the universe is. Does that make sense? I hope so. Okay, I know it's uneasy. It's okay. It's okay. I'm not a heretic yet. So this Midrash tells, is the, is the Jewish way of filling in a lot of these things and interpreting a lot of these things and going, asking the question too, well, like, where did this Abraham guy come from? What, what do we know about him and what is, what is going on with him? And the point I want to make about today's, in today's teaching is that Abraham initiates new creation. Abraham initiates new creation. So we have the idea of new creation from the New Testament, Right? We have it from Yeshua himself. We have it from Paul. If anyone is in Messiah, he is a new creation. All things have passed. All has become new. 
we understand this concept of new creation as Christians very, very well. We just don't think it was a thing back in the, in the Old Testament. But just look so far, what do we have? We have creation, Adam, Cain, Seth. The flood is new creation. The narrative of the flood is a reversal of Genesis, the creation of Genesis, and then a recreation. And then things fall again with Babel. Hello, Babel, Adam, using their own wisdom to make decisions, right? See these things parallel each other, right? Cycles, okay? So after the fall of Babel, what would you expect? New creation, right? That's just the cycles in Scripture. It's the way that it goes. And so we have Avram. So I want to talk about how Avram initiates new creation. Again, we, need, we would do well to spend a lot of time in these first 11 chapters to understand how humanity had forsaken its job and identity as the image of God. To rule the earth in the image of Hashem. Instead, you have Nimrod who thought himself a god. Right? And I want to read some things to you that I think are really interesting. So you have Abraham that comes on the scene, initiates new creation. All right. So God says to Abraham, go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I'll make you a great nation. Well, he's coming from a great nation, Babylon. Not great like, wow, you're really great. Great like awesome and mighty, right? And, and expanding territory. Think of Babylon's territorial expansion like Greece and Rome of the pre-first century and first century, right? They're, they're doing what, what nations do if they're left unchecked. So he tells Abraham, no, you think you have a great, you're part of a, a, a large nation now? I'm gonna knock your socks off. I'm gonna make you, start out of you and make you a great nation. And he says, I'm going to bless you and I'll make your name great. Now here's the phrase that really got me thinking several years ago. God says, I'll make your name great. Well, didn't we just leave a story where the people were trying to make their name great? So why, so, and, and that's something obviously that God doesn't want. He doesn't want humanity's name to be great. He wants humanity to help make his name great, right? That was the whole story of the Tower of Babel. That was the reason that God mixed the languages and did all the stuff. So why then, we turn the page just a few verses later, why then now is he saying, hey guy, human, Abram, I'm gonna make your name great. What happened before this that would cause God to wanna make Abraham's name great is my question. Does that make sense? What did Abraham do to prove to God that Abraham could handle his name being made great? All right, does that make sense? All right, so enter the Midrash. Now again, this is not scripture. I wanna be, a lot of congregations, a lot of people get all willy and wonky and off in the weeds. This is just interesting stuff for us to chew on and stuff for us to think about. So the tradition is that Abraham went through a series of tests, okay? How many tests did Abraham go through? 10, Ten tests. 10 tests, right? 
So we're going to talk about some of them, not all of them in detail. We're going to talk about a few of them. Now, the Midrash is stories from ancient, ancient times. It was written down finally a couple of hundred years before Yeshua. Finally actually written, written down, but the, the explanations and the stories are, are ancient. So the first of the ten trials of Avraham, the first one is his birth and his recognition of Hashem as one God. That's the first test. I want you to listen to this. So it says, the strength and cunning of King Nimrod were proverbial. Were they? We don't know. We've heard about him like once to this point. We don't know anything about Nimrod. From the Bible, we know like he was, what does the Bible say? He was a great hunter, right? That's about all we know. Okay, doesn't sound like a big deal to me. But the Midrash says, which is the title of this, this is a a collection, a condensation of, of Midrashic stories. It says that his his strength and cunning were proverbial that's kind of a big deal it was universal knowledge that his arm aimed at a deer's heart never missed its mark so that refers to the hunter we know about in scripture woe to him who dared to doubt that Nimrod was a self-created God the hangman stood ever ready next to the throne one day Nimrod's astrologers humbly approached the throne and prostrated themselves before the king now when did I tell you that this Midrash was, Midrash was finally written a couple hundred years before what before Yeshua keep that in mind one day Nimrod's astrologers humbly approached the throne and prostrated themselves before the king your majesty they announced We have become aware of grave danger threatening your throne. The stars predict that a boy will be born soon in your kingdom who will deny your divinity and will overcome you. Nimrod turned to his ministers. What protective measures do you suggest? They answered, the answer came quickly. Order that all newborn newborn boys should be killed. Does this sound familiar to anybody? This is fine advice. Call a meeting of the architects ordering them to design special houses in which every woman with child shall be confined. Then shall we, we shall then make sure that not only the baby girls, or that only the baby girls will be dismissed alive. Terah, we know him, right? One of the most honorable noblemen at the court was present during the discussion and jokingly asked, you do not expect to include my wife in the new arrangement, do you? Well, who is Terah? That's Abraham's dad. So he was one of the most respected noblemen of Nimrod's court. We're starting to get a little bit of a picture now of the story of Abraham, right? Oh, things are getting good. All right. So he goes like, surely, you know, you know my wife's pregnant. You don't expect us to be included in this, right? We do not refer to your house, Terak, the king assured him. You are most trusted of my ministers. The cruel verdict was issued, and thenceforth all baby boys were murdered. Over 700,000 newborns were killed. One morning, Nimrod's astrologers requested another audience. The danger is still present, O king. We have observed a star above Terok's house shooting out in all directions of the firmament and devouring the four stars in the east, west, north, and south. This clearly points to uh, Terok's newly born son who will conquer your kingdom. (laughs) I love it. Order Terak to hand over his new baby and I will compensate his loss with treasury of gold and silver. The messengers go to, uh, to Terak's house uh, and 
They say, give, you, give, give us your son. And he goes, no, you're crazy. He goes, yeah, but the king's going to compensate you. And he went, no, you're, you're, no. The answer is no. Um, the messengers left, but Terok did not relax. Hurry, he commanded his wife, Amtale, uh, wrap up the baby and hide him in a cave away from the house. And I am sure, that, because I'm sure they'll come back soon. Uh, and so it, it comes on and comes on and uh, it goes on and Abraham goes into a cave and he's raised, he grows up there in a cave, etc., etc. So, sounds a lot like the Moses story. Also sounds a lot like the Jesus story, right? Now, what I'm not saying and what I don't want you to hear me say is that there wasn't a star over Bethlehem and blah, blah, blah. but but to first century Jews who knew this as well as they, they knew the tradition see to, to first century Jews and to even Jewish people today when you talk about Abraham they don't just think about what's in here they also think about what's in here because it's one story to them does that make sense? Scripture still takes priority, but this is the context to the story. Right, it's Eastern thinking. You can have multiple things fill up the bucket and still one thing be important. So when first century Jews, when when the, the gospels are being written and they talk about a star in the East. See, the what's important here when we read these things and when we start to understand this history, it's important. We've got, <laughs> we're worried about how big Noah's Ark was, right? Remember we've talked about that? And we missed the whole point of the story of Noah's Ark. Remember we talked about that? We, we've spent decades and decades looking for the Bethlehem star. Right? Where, where, what star is it? Trying to identify the Bethlehem star. How did it move? Oh, well, it, it was in retrograde, which means that it, it circles back on itself in an orbit before it moves on to its bigger orbit. It's like an orbit inside of an orbit. All kind of scientific explanations for the star of Bethlehem. What if the star that's being talked about in the Gospels is supposed to point you back to this? Because where's the last time in Jewish thinking there was a star that set over somebody's house? It was Avraham. So could the gospel be telling us that, hey, this Yeshua that you're about to read about, he's a new Abraham? Would the Jews of his day, when they heard about this star, would they have thought, well, how does a star sit still over a home? It must be in retrograde. Let us ponder these ex. No, they don't care. What do they think when they hear a star set over somebody's house? They think, wait, the turning point, the man who is the turning point for our story, Israel, this happened with him. Come on. Could it be that this baby that is being talked about in the Gospels is another turning point for Israel's story? He's a new Abraham? Hey, I don't know, because they're, they're, they're been, they've been beaten up by Greece, and now they've been subjugated by Rome, and now they have this insane leader, Pontius Pilate, and 
the Jewish leader, Herod, he's not, very, he's not very sane himself. And so there's all this violence on the other side. All this stuff, all this, all this stuff that is taking Israel away from what it's supposed to be. And all of a sudden, there's a star that shows up. Some people come and they say, hey, we've seen a star. And your kingdom is going to be threatened. Who cares? Who cares about how the stars set over a house still? Nobody cares. It's not the point of the story. The point is that there's not only a new Adam on the scene because he messed up, there's also a new Abraham on the scene that is going to be the turning point for Israel's story. Come on. I, oh. See why this, it, it, it grieves me so much whenever we turn our back on the Jewish tradition. When we turn our back on the way that the Jews have wrestled and, and lived and preserved their story. And then we go, well, those Jews just changed everything. Shut your mouth and sit down. When we start to, to, to throw shade and to make derogatory statements about the way the Jewish people understand God and the Torah... You should not be allowed to talk to anybody because it's anti-Semitism and it's hate and at the root of it all is arrogance. Now, if you don't understand the way they understand it, that's on you. But you're not the center of God's universe. Israel is and his people and he gave them the insights and he preserved them and he walked life with them and gave them a covenant so that we could enter but we are attached to them. Yes. Here's the next part of this, this condensed version of the, the Midrash and talks about what we were talking about earlier. Terach, Abraham's father, was a, a nobleman, right, in the court of Nimrod. Okay? And it says that Terok's business was the sale of idols. <laughs> the irony of this is too profound. This, all of this story so far is about are we going to be God's idol or are we going to create our own idols that's what this whole story has been about and a star shows up and sits over this man's house and he happens to be not only a seller but a craftsman of idols so Terok's business was the sale of idols and the young man Avram did his best to convince people not to buy them this is further along in the story Avram has realized that there is one God and it's not Nimrod it's Hashem once it happened that his father had to go on a trip and left Avram in charge of his store his, the, his instructions to his son were the bigger the God the higher the price you charge if an important person comes in offer him a big idol to a lesser customer give a smaller one and Terok left an impressive looking broad shouldered man entered the store give me a big idol as befits my status you see you get the flavor of idolatry 
he pompously addressed the boy Avram. Avram handed him the largest idol he could find on the shelves, and the man drew a substantial amount of money from his pocket. How old are you? Avram questioned him. I am 50 years old. And are you not ashamed to worship a God that is only one day old? Avram asked. (laughs) My father just made this one yesterday. Confused, the man put the money back in his pocket and left. An old woman entered. She told Avram that thieves had invaded her house during the previous night and stolen her gods. Is that so, Avram asked. If your gods were unable to protect themselves from the robbers, how do you expect them to protect you? You're right, the woman admitted. But whom shall we serve? The creator of heaven and earth who made me and you, Avraham answered. The woman left without buying a god. Another woman came in with a bowl full of flour as an offering for the gods. Avram took an axe and smashed all the idols except the biggest. He placed the axe leaning against the big idol. When Terak returned and saw the havoc in the house, he screamed angrily, What happened here? Why shall I conceal the truth from you? Answered Avram. While you were away, a woman brought some flour as an offering. Each god exclaimed that he wanted to be the first to have it. The biggest was insulted, so he seized an axe and broke all the others. What nonsense is this? shouted Terak. You know very well that they neither speak nor move around. Is that so? Avram answered. Pray, think about what you just admitted. Why then do you serve them? One day it was Terok's turn to conduct the services before God, the gods of Nimrod's royal palace. Terok took Avram along to the capital and they arrived in Nimrod's palace and found it to contain a large exhibition of gods in gold, silver, copper, wood, and stone. Terok brought bread and wine and offered them to the gods. Take them, eat and drink, Avram said to the idols, and be appeased. None of the idols moved or answered with a sound. You see, they are worth nothing, Avram remarked. He threw all the idols and shoved them together in a pile. Then he set fire to them and hurriedly fled from the palace. This could not be ignored any longer. Terak himself, a loyal subject of King Nimrod, reported his son's misdemeanor to the king. Avram had successfully passed the first trial. He had applied his mind to recognize the creator and had rejected idol worship. We don't have time today, but this goes to talk about the second trial which is called the cauldron of Ur Hasdim, Ur of the Chaldees. The cauldron is where Avram gets caught by Nimrod. He's put in prison for 10 years. And when they go back to him to see if he would repent from his, his, uh, you know, uh, his infidelity to Nimrod, he, decide, he says, not, no, I'm not. I'm, not gonna, I'm gonna be loyal to the God, the creator, and so they throw him in a furnace. They throw him in a furnace, and the angels be, go to Hashem and they say, "Let us go down and tame the fire down so that we can so that we can save Abraham. He's the one that that is 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 making disciples for you." And God says, "No, I myself will go down and be in the furnace." There's one that looks like the Son of Man, like the Son of God walking amongst them. 
you see literally how the Bible, when it tells stories, we go, wow, we've never heard that before. The people hearing the stories had heard them before. And they're making connections. So who is Daniel? Daniel's another new Abraham. See? And when you start to read Daniel as a new Abraham, some of Daniel starts to click together like it didn't before. When you read Yeshua like a new Abraham, what is Abraham's, what is his, what is the thing that he is, well, here, let me just read this. I know I'm doing a lot of reading today. I hope that's okay. But this is from the stone uh, edition Humash. As of several of you have, ha- have this. So this intro to Parsha Lech Lecha is phenomenal. Listen to this. It says, this reading begins with a new birth of mankind. The story of Avraham and his descendants. The first 2,000 years from creation were the era of desolation. Adam had fallen. Hevel had been murdered. Idolatry had been introduced into the world. Ten dismal generations had been washed away by the deluge, the flood. And then, excuse me, and then the ten generations from Noah had failed. Avram was born in the year 1948 from creation. In the year 2000, 40, uh, four years after the dispersion and six years before the death of Noah, he started to influence disciples and serve Hashem. Let, let's just, there's a lot of names and dates being thrown around. Let's just take some time to think about what was just said. Avram was born in the year 1948 from creation. Okay? Israel was born in 1948. Come on, somebody. Yeah. Y'all not excited. I don't. He was born in the year 1948 from creation. In the year 2000, four years after the dispersion. In other words, the dispersion from Babylon. So, so wait, you mean to tell me that Abraham is involved in the Tower of Babylon Because see, how, see I'm, I'm hoping you understand now the problem with how we read the Bible. Tower of Babel, all that's over. Abraham's born. No. Abram is around witnessing the whole thing. Yeah. Standing for righteousness, as the Midrash talks about, against those in the Tower of Babel. So four years after the dispersion and six years before the death of Noah. What? This Noah. This Noah that was the righteous one in his generation. Now whether, there's some debate. Maybe Noah wasn't super righteous. Maybe everybody was just really, really terrible. And so you only had to be kind of good to be called the righteous one in the generation. Either that or Noah really, really was righteous. Either way, Noah is the great, 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 whatever grandfather of Abraham. Do the lineage. Is there a chance Abraham and Noah spent some time together? There's another, there's another tradition that says that Shem... Right, so Noah has Shem, Ham, and Yafet. Shem actually goes off and starts a yeshiva, a training school for serving the God of Israel. 
and that Avraham actually is a disciple of Shem. That tradition also makes the point that very well could be that Shem is Melchizedek. That's way off the point. But these are just things that float around that are interesting connections, okay? The point is that Abraham and Noah lived in the same time, which is fascinating. It says that in that time, he started to influence disciples and to serve, uh, influence disciples to serve Hashem. Well, how do we know that? Well, it says in verse five of Genesis 12, if you look at verse five, it says, Abram took his wife Sarah and Lot, his brother's son, and all the wealth they had amassed and the souls they made in Haran. How do you make souls? It's disciples, okay? It says, with the emergence of Avram, the era of desolation had come to an end and the era of Torah had begun. Wait, but we don't get the Torah for another, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I know. With the, with the emergence of Abraham, the era of desolation had come to an end and the era of Torah had begun. Don't you remember in Genesis 20, I think it is 2 or somewhere, it says that Avram kept all of my Torah mitzvot, he kept all my decrees and all that. The scripture says that. Well, we don't have a Torah yet, a Sinai Torah. So what does Abraham know, right? With Abraham, there began a profound change in the spiritual nature of mankind. The plan of creation was for all human beings to have an equal share in fulfilling the divine mission and for the Torah to be given to all mankind. But after 20 generations of failure, the privilege of being God's chosen people was earned by Abraham and his offspring. Now, I hope this challenges you a little bit because God is a puppet master, right? And he, he, we're, all, we're, we're all automatons, that, or at least the people in the Bible were. They didn't have free will, right? They, Abraham didn't have a choice right he was chosen by God because God is all-powerful and God does God gets what God wants every single time from from human beings right I want to challenge that and say that Abraham had a choice and that he caught God's eye he earned God's favor he earned this blessing to be the turning point in Israel's story and to be the root of the whole nation of Israel and that's what I'm interested in. It says that they would receive the Torah and they would be in the vanguard, the vanguard, the front lines of perfecting the world and bringing all people to accept the sovereignty, sovereignty of the one God. Abraham did not win his new status by default. He had to prove his greatness by passing 10 tests of faith. The first trial is mentioned in Scripture in the first passage of this reading, the command that Abraham give up his entire past and follow the lead, the God's lead to a new land. By definition, a heavenly test is one that forces a person to choose between God's will and his own nature or understanding of what is right. Clearly, it would be no challenge to Abraham, who was the epitome of kindness. Let's stop. In our minds, those of you that are here on Wednesday night, you should remember this, but it was Wednesday night, so you probably forgot. But I asked you, what is, what do we accredit to Abraham as his most valuable trait? No, in Christianity, faith, right? Faith. He's in, he's in Hebrews 11, duh, right? 
the hall of faith. We say that Abraham's greatest value and contribution to mankind is his faith. What does Jewish tradition say it was? Hospitality. We go like, hospitality? Faith is much more important than hospitality. Mm. But that's where we're wrong. <laughs> because we talk about, we laud Abraham for his faith. All the while, we don't have a real clear picture of what faith really is. And we negate Abraham's true concrete attribute of hospitality which we do understand we live in the south hello we should be killing this Abraham the epitome of kindness he was asked to uh, it would would be um, no challenge for him to be asked to help the needy but it would be a supreme test of faith for him to desert his aged father and homeland or to give his cherished beloved son as an offering. Thus Abraham was tested by being forced to subordinate his wishes and wisdom to those of God. By doing so, he demonstrated his conviction that man's highest goal is to accept the divine wisdom as sole truth. To do what? Accept what as sole truth? The divine wisdom? Remember this guy right here? Adam he had two trees one was the tree of life that's divine wisdom one was the etz da'at the tree of knowledge where you get to decide which one did he choose right he chose the etz da'at which one did Abraham choose the tree of life you see that they're the same thing they're the same thing so I want to read a couple of rabbinic opinions on Abraham's test and then we'll, we'll shut down It says, since God knows all future events and how every person will respond to any given situation, why was it necessary to test Abraham? It's a good question. According to Rambam, which is Maimonides, the trials were meant to display to the world how a great man obeys God. So Abraham, I want you to do all this crazy stuff. Leave your house and leave everything else. Leave everybody behind. Start an incredible incredibly different whole new life by the way that's the epitome of conversion Abraham's leaving his everything and becoming a new person that's the epitome of conversion that's why it's linked to new creation but not only that some of the other the other trials I made a list because I know I wouldn't be able to keep up with them um, the cauldron of Ur Hasdim, right we have we have that one leaving the, the family Famine in Canaan, right? Which he has to go to Egypt. Sarah then is taken to Pharaoh's palace. That's number five. Verse uh, number six, Lot is captured. His nephew, Lot, is captured. Verse seven, uh, number seven is circumcision at like 80 years old. And all of his men. That's a challenge. That's a test. Um, next, he has to send Hagar away. After that, number nine, Ishmael, his firstborn son, is estranged. That's another test. And the last test is the Akedah, the uh, binding of Isaac. So according to Maimonides, these tests were not about Abraham. Abraham was already a man of righteousness. These tests were to show the world how a faithful man obeys God. Just sit with that for a minute. What if the tests that you're facing in your life are not about you? What if they don't have anything to do with you? What if God is using you? Well, God doesn't just use people. Yeah, no, he uses people all the time. 
What if God is using you and the way that you react to tests to show the rest of your world how a faithful person obeys God? How you doing? Well, you win some, you lose some, right? But what if that is, I believe that's a part of the, the purpose, the function of tests and trials. Is, is to show the people in our world how you serve God. Because life is the same for everybody, right? That old prosperity garbage about, you know, you say, say certain things and live a certain way and life will be dandelions and roses. We all know that's a lie. The Bible says that the, it rains on the just and the unjust. That life is rough for everybody. Can be rough for everybody. And our job is not to move around reality so that we can be blessed. Our job is to show people how we are, remain faithful and loyal to the God of creation through everything just like they're going through. But we, we have, we have spirit-filled prosperity Christians that are running around saying, well, if life's bad, speak to it, pray to it, blah, 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 and it'll move out of your way. What, what, the, what the world really needs, I'm not gonna get into a song, what the world needs now, <laughs> what the world really needs is somebody who is going through the same thing a lost person is going through, but going through it in a way that favors God and that is faithful to God. Not saying, come get some of my magic and all your troubles will be gone. That's a crap doctrine. It's garbage theology. Abraham probably was tested. Not because he needed the test, but because the world needed to see. Because he was making disciples, remember? All his people are disciples. It says, thus when Abraham set precedence in faithful obedience, his performance under extreme pressure became lessons for the rest of humanity. Obviously, we still, we're reading about him today. And just like any good Jewish discussion, you have another rabbi that disagrees. <laughs> Ramban, Nachmanides, R-A-M-B-A-N, Nachmanides, explains the concept of trial differently. Of course, the outcome is never in doubt to God, for he knows that the person being tested will persevere. Wait. The outcome is not in doubt to God. What test are you facing right now? Don't say that loud. Um, what test are you facing right now? You don't know how it's going to turn out. The outcome is not in question to God. But here's the thing. He doesn't care about how it turns out. He cares about how you turn out. God doesn't care about how it turns out. He cares about how you turn out. Come on. These are some good like Stephen Furtick type phrases. And quote. Like y'all got to get excited. These should be memed. Like come on. God doesn't care how the test turns out. He cares about how you turn out. Amen. He knows the outcome. And Nachmanides, Ramban, said that he knows that you will persevere. So if you're feeling like you're facing a mountain, a test, a trial, and you feel like you're weak and you're weary and you're worn, and you don't know if you're going to make it, God put the test in your path because he knew you would. That's not even a part of the calculation for God. Man, that's incredible. 
to the contrary, he says, to the contrary, he says, listen, this is so profound. A just God, a just God. Why does God allow suffering? God's not just, right? All these things we hear. A just God does not impose trials that are beyond the capacity of the individual. Sounds very New Testament-y, doesn't it? Where did Paul get that? I'll not put anything more than you can bear. Hello? Okay. God tests only righteous people who will do his will, not the wicked who will obey. God tests only righteous people who will do his will, not the wicked who will obey. Thus, all of the Torah's trials are for the benefit of those being tested. See, Ramban has a, his thing is a more personal test. Not necessarily for the world, it's for the person. It's for the benefit of those being tested. But that is only known to God. The person being tested has free choice and he must find the strength and wisdom to choose correctly two trees, right? If he does, then he has translated his potential into action and made himself a greater person. Oh, we don't believe in that. Every good thing that we have as people is from God. And that's the problem. That's why some of us have been Christians for 30, 40, 50 years and we're still the same old depressed, unhappy, negative, yeah, yeah people that we were when we first got saved. We're still addicted. We're still in domestic abuse. We're still abusing others. We're still violent. We're still angry. We're still all the things full of, 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 uh, of hatred and of covetousness and jealousy and bitterness because the only thing good we have in us comes from God. Like he just has a vat of different fruits of the spirit up in heaven and he just sprinkles, a little, oh, you need some more abundant life here. Let me give you a little bit of that. You need a little bit of patience here. I'll just sprinkle that. A little bit of love. Oh, you need, you need to be free from your bitterness here I'll just there's a vat of whatever that is I'll just sprinkle that on you and you'll be fine and that's the mindset that we approach God and our walk with God yet and we reject the idea that we can make ourselves better because somehow that's really arrogant no what's being arrogant is sitting on our spiritual hind end and believing that God is just going to zap us with all the heavenly gifts that's arrogant that's arrogance he says that he says that he has translated his potential into action and made himself a greater person for the actual deed far outweighs mere potential in the heavenly scales of judgment remember we talked about Cain and Abel and God said told Cain if you do well you'll be you'll be lifted up right but if you don't do well in other words improve yourself you missed this one Cain but it's okay I'm not mad at you do better the next time but if you don't do that, that's option one. Let's call that tree of life. That's tree of life. Do better. Improve yourself. Yeah, make, make teshuva. Turn back. Get it right the next time. God says, but if you don't do that, Cain, the other option is what? Anybody remember? Sin is crouching at the door and it has romantic passion for you. So if you don't do better out of your will and out of the, the, the will of the spirit if you don't do better out of self-control then the other option there is no middle option there is not like well I'll just hang out here and see what happens either we're moving forward and we're improving ourselves by the help of God or we are engaged romantically with failure 
and it continues to produce failure there is no in between so for those of us again that sit around and wait for God to do it and refuse to do something on our own what are we actually doing we're actually reproducing failure we're impregnated with it we're paralyzed by it we are reproducing it and we are spreading it not only in our own lives but to those around us our children our family our friends you see this is the this is the exact same thing he's talking about we have the power to do better this is not apart from god though the whole thing starts with seeing tests and trials as god's instrument as god's way of giving us patience of giving us love of teaching us self-control of teaching us to get out of bitterness life life god uses to teach us how to be more in his image he says mere poten- uh, uh, actual deed far outweighs mere potential in heavenly scales of just- judgment and he can therefore be rewarded for what he did rather than what he was merely capable of doing ooh that should hurt some of our feelings the reward is not for what we could have done or what the, cap- the capacity for us to do the reward is for what we did the books that are going to be opened Abraham through his tests I believe they're they're both the the tests and trials serve two functions and if we are children of Abraham which we are not only because Yeshua was descended from Abraham that's, that's great and that's part of it but we are children of Abraham because we are new creation right? And if Abraham is the one who initiates new creation from all of this stuff, listen, doesn't the world look a lot like this stuff? And and I'm not saying this is the only time in history it's ever looked like this. It's not. But, But in our lifetime, it does. In our lifetime, it does. And that's what matters because this is cyclical, right? And every generation, God is looking to see if that generation is going to, is going to turn this are you going to turn are you going to turn this in your generation it might the world i don't believe you know oh it's the worst it's ever been no it's not no it's not Six hundred thousand people haven't been put in gas chambers it's not the worst it's ever been sorry but you know what in our generation it's the worst you and i've ever seen it so 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 then aren't we responsible to do something about it we are new creation. It's our job to be an Abraham. But, and, and what is Abraham's biggest trait? Not faith, hospitality. Hospitality. Which means he would sit down with anybody, welcome anybody, provide for anybody. No judgment for anybody and how they're living. Sounds a lot like our Messiah, doesn't it? He's eating with sinners and tax collectors. Yeah, because he's, remember the star? Hey, you guys, you didn't get it? He's a new Abraham. Initiating new creation. What I'm, what I'm drawing conclusions between Abraham and Yeshua are not to take away from Yeshua, and I hope they don't do that. Because, because Yeshua's star is not the first star that was known to the Jewish people. I hope that doesn't diminish. See, sometimes we think that Yeshua's strength is in his uniqueness, how he did things differently. 
But that's a problem with our Western thinking. We look along a row of houses and we go, oh, they're all the same. Oh, that one's colored differently. That one sticks out to us. But in, in Eastern thought and biblical thought, there's more strength to the tradition and the consistency of the tradition than there is to something new that sticks out like a sore thumb. So, you, so Yeshua's star, maybe not being the first new thing that is, is familiar to the Jews of his day, doesn't diminish him. It actually, for me, it, it, it gives more, not credence, he doesn't need credence, it gives more I don't know, I don't know. It, it gives more to, to his story. Not even credibility, he doesn't need credibility. It just, it puts him in the long line of tradition. More depth, more depth I guess, yeah. You know, to go where like, wait, we've seen this before. I know. See, the, the, one of the, the challenges with Yeshua is that if, 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 the, the, if the biblical story is going along, and this is the Tanakh and you got ups and downs and the biblical story is going along and everything is happening and God's dealing with Israel and, and everything you know is just, is just herky-jerky and there's good times and bad times there's exile and there's triumph and all this stuff and then you get to, you get to 1 BC and all of a sudden bingo! It's that. Yeah, and, and something just went wrong. Yeah, right. <laughs> but, but if this... If, if, if God has dealt with Israel for 4,000 years and then all of a sudden something comes that nobody has ever seen before and it's, a complete foreign, it's completely foreign to everybody and everything that, that jars the whole, the whole story and, every, and everybody's lost nobody knows what to expect but just like Yeshua says some stuff that sound like the Pharisees that preceded him and he quotes from the prophets that preceded him and now maybe even his star is something that preceded him you see how it puts him in the tradition of prophetic it puts him in the prophetic tradition he's not some aberration that's coming to start something totally new and wreck all of the past and say all that was for for nothing he's coming to to substantiate all of this and say because of all of this because of all of this now you know who i am and as the gospel writers and the New Testament writers reflected on their own tradition and they saw and they heard the life and the words of this, this Galilean from Nazareth, as they watched him and as they spent time with him and, and as they heard him teach in public and in private and they watched him do the things that he did, what triggered for them was his hospitality looks a lot like Abraham. His, his teaching sounds a lot like Moshe. His, the way he does this sounds a lot like what Adam was supposed to do. So, so when they wrote their stories about him, the Gospels, to give us a trigger that who we should be seeing him as, they, they built upon those things in the tradition. And you know what? Maybe there was a star over Bethlehem. I'm not debating the point, the fact of whether there was or there wasn't. What I'm telling you is because of the star over Bethlehem, we can point back to this and go, oh, I see Yeshua doing really Abrahamic stuff. And it, it puts him in the whole tradition, the whole biblical tradition that he's carrying on the story. But he is winning when the patriarchs lost. <laughs> 
he's, he's, he's eating from the tree of life when the patriarchs failed and ate from the tree of the knowledge. So the story of Abraham is, we, we put a lot of emphasis on Moses because of the Torah. Moshe this, Moshe that, Moses this, Moses this. But Abraham's really the foundation stone of Israelite faith and faith and Yeshua's faith, Jewish faith, and, and, and Christian faith as well. And for that fact, a matter of Islamic faith. Um, he is the foundation stone. And he deserves more treatment than we give him. Problem is, we have like a few verses that tell us about, well, he married this woman. And it was his niece. Off to the story. Off, off to the races. And so that's why tradition and things like this are so good in kind of helping us to, to think about who Abraham was. So let us carry on in the tradition of Abraham Avinu, Abraham our father. We bless, Father, you among all. We bless you, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Father, we thank you for everyone who's joined us this morning. Um, I think live stream got working back again. So, Father, we bless you for our live stream audience. And um, we bless you for this family here that, that hugs and loves and, and cries with and rejoices with those of us who are we're walking life together. And um, we, we just, we thank you, Father. I want to say a special prayer as we're talking about Abraham. I want to say a special prayer for the nation of Israel, for its government leaders, for the IDF, for every Jewish man, woman, child, from, from the Golan all the way down to, uh, to Tamar in the south. And Father, I pray for safety for the nation of Israel, for prosperity for the nation of Israel. Father, that they would be not only inhabitants of the land but that Torah would be established in their hearts and their lives that Jerusalem would be at peace Father and that Messiah would come quickly we bless you Father for your safety and your wholeness and we thank you for a great week ahead as we exhibit and display the Abrahamic image of what it means to be a true follower of Yeshua and a, few, a, a true child of God and, and Selim Elohim, image of God. So we bless you and we thank you, Father, through our Messiah, Yeshua. Amen and amen.